ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد تريدن وبيجن وذا فيرست حديث هي قال الإمام البخاري رحمه الله حدثنا عبدان قال أخبرنا عبد الله قال أخبرنا يونس عن الزهري قال أخبرني سالم عن ابن عمر رضي الله عنهما أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال إنما بقاؤكم في من سلف من الأمم كما بين صلاة العصر إلى غروب الشمس أوتيا أهل التوراة التوراة فعملوا بها حتى انتصف النهار ثم عجزوا فأعطوا قيراطا قيراطا ثم أوتي أهل الإنجيل الإنجيل فعملوا به حتى صليت العصر ثم عجزوا فأعطوا قيراطا قيراطا ثم أوتيتم القرآن فعملتم به حتى غربت الشمس فأعطيتم قيراطين قيراطين فقال أهل الكتاب هؤلاء أقل منا عملا وأكثر أجرا قال الله هل ظلمتكم من حقكم شيئا قالوا لا قال فهو فضلي أوتيه من أشاء This narration you will all be aware of because We've done it before In which class, when, where, which book In this book Earlier on at the beginning this hadith was there We did this hadith at the beginning of the book so what does this hadith say? What was it about? It was an example being given of the time spans that your uh, existence or your presence relative to the nations that came before you is like between Asr to sunset. And it mentions how the Jews, the people of the Torah were given the Torah and they acted upon it up until the middle of the day and then they were unable and they were given a qirat qirat then the people of Injil were given the Injil and they acted upon it from the middle up until Asr and then they were unable and then you were given the Quran and you acted upon it from the Asr up until the sunset from Fajr all the way till the middle of the day is a long period of time from the middle of the day up until Asr is a bit shorter and from Asr to Maghrib is even shorter so it mentions at the end of the narration with these examples being given of the Jews the Christians and then the Muslims the Muslims having the shortest time span of the examples given it's despite having the shortest time span the reward given to them all was the same so they say the people of the book these lot these ones did less work than us but they got more reward but then Allah says did I oppress you from your rights anything and they say no and then Allah says that is my virtue I give it to whom I will the hadith we did it before but the point that is being made this time is regarding the statement فَعَمِلُوا بِهَا أَيْ بِالتَّوْرَاتِ وَفِي الْإِنْجِيلِ قَالْ عَمِلُوا بِهِ وَفِي الْقُرْآنِ قَالْ عَمِلْتُمْ بِهِ It mentions how they acted upon the Torah. And then the people afterwards acted upon the Injil. And then you, this Ummah, act upon the Quran. And recitation of the Quran 
is a part of you acting upon the Quran. وَمِنَ الْعَمَلِ بِهِ تِلَاوَتُهُ فَتَكُونُ التِّلَاوَةُ عَمَلًا وَيَكُونُ الْمَتْلُوْ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ غَيْرَ مَخْلُوقٍ So when you recite the Qur'an, that is an action that you are doing. That is an action that you are doing. You are reciting the Qur'an. What is being recited, that we mentioned is the speech of Allah uncreated. What is being recited, those words are the speech of Allah uncreated. You reciting is created, that is your voice, your vocal cords, your tongue, your teeth, your movements. That is you doing that, your action. And that is the same point being made here. Mas'ala, uh, a side point that the Shaykh mentions here. Hal yajuz ihda'ul Qur'ani lil kafir? Is it permissible to gift a Qur'an to a kafir? Is it permissible to gift a Qur'an to a kafir? A mushaf to a kafir? Permissible or not? Oh, I spotted somebody smiling. <laughs> so, put your hands up if you've been on CC Da'wah, maybe even as short a time period as today. So is it permissible then, O oh, educated ones, regarding giving the Qur'an to a kafir? So is it permissible or not then? So it's not permissible to give the Qur'an, the Mus'haf, to a kafir. Correct. The, the, when we talk about the Qur'an, the Qur'an isn't, we don't mean the translation of the full English version. That is a translation. The actual Mus'haf, when we say a Qur'an, a Mus'haf, then we're talking about the actual Arabic Mus'haf Qur'an. Giving that to a kafir? No. The translations, which are purely English, the Muhsin Khan one, purely available in English, Taqiyyuddin al-Hidali al-Muhsin Khan, it's available, a full English version of it. You can give that. But to give the full Arabic actual Mus'haf, then that is not to be given. Why? Why? Purification is differed about. Do you have to have wudu to pick up the Mus'haf? Do you have to or not? Yes. <laughs> there is a difference of opinion about it there is a degree of difference over that issue it's not something agreed upon many of the scholars of course they do mention evidences that indicate that you must be upon purity and that is the safer and stronger opinion to be upon purity when touching the Quran the Mus'haf to be upon wudu etc but there's a difference so that may not be the exclusive reason you would use to say you can't give a mushaf to a kafir. Because a kafir is impure or not? Impure? Impure? Impure or not? One word answer. A kafir, impure? Impure. So we say that the kafir is impure. Do we say it or not? Yes. So, and what about marrying a Christian or a Jew then? What are you going to say about your wife? Impurity is two types when it comes to talking about a non-Muslim. Physical impurity, no, not necessarily. A kafir physically has a one hour long shower 
full soap bar disappeared. Physically, his body is clean. Physically, his body is clean in that sense. But the impurity is the impurity of shirk inside. The impurity of polytheism, the lack of monotheism. That is an internal impurity within a kafir. Physically, externally, a kafir could fully, fully wash and physically he's pure. Physically, there's no dirt upon him. But internally, that impurity exists. So, talking about the Quran here though, giving that copy of the Quran in the Arabic, the actual Mus'haf is not done primarily not necessarily the impurity issue that is part of it of course but primarily because there is a very likely possibility of degradation a kafir doesn't recognize the the importance of the quran he may take it put it at home on the shelf falls off it's left on the floor here there he doesn't recognize on the uh, table he's got it there puts his mug of tea on top doesn't realize and so the kafir, having that Qur'an in his possession, may lead to the degradation and the lack of honoring of that mushaf, of that Qur'an. The kafir may de- degrade the Qur'an. May even end up stepping on it, doesn't recognize the reality and the, the status of the Qur'an with his other books fall on the floor, walking across everywhere. So there is uh, that possibility. So the Sheikh says, if you want to educate a kafir, regarding the quran then do so in your presence that you uh, show him that and you read to him and you explain to him rather than giving it to him and that is obviously more so in the context of arab non-muslims for the arab non-muslim the question of translations doesn't even arise arab so for the arab that's what it's really referring to here you would have the mushaf there show them show them texts of it sections of it Arab they read they understand so you show them like that rather than giving that to him and here in our context it's simpler you simply give the meanings the translations of the Quran the issue of purification is mentioned actually here the Sheikh mentions it as a side point he says in terms of touching the mushaf and the issue of purity, whether you have to be on wudu or not. He says the ayah that many of the scholars use as their default ayah for their evidence that you have to be upon purity when touching the mushaf is the ayah, لا يمسه إلا المطهرون. None touch it except those upon purity none must touch it except those upon purity they do not touch it except upon purity so that many of the scholars say is in reference to the quran the mushaf and it is in reference to the quran of course and it says you do not touch it or they do not touch it except that they are upon purity and so they say the ruling is you have to be upon Purity, wudu, uh, and not upon impurity when touching the Quran. However, many of the scholars have mentioned that this ayah in its context and tafsir actually refers to something else. And they say it actually refers to that is one tafsir. That it's speaking about the Quran, but it, in this context, it is speaking about it in the preserved tablet. And so they do not touch it. Who is they in that context? The 
angels who are upon purity. And so they say that isn't in reference to us in our context. So it can't be used as an evidence for us. It's about the angels and the preserved tablet. But then the other side say, well, if the angels were being told only touch that Quran in the, the preserved tablet, etc., upon purity, then surely we similarly should only touch it now upon purity too. So they come back with the same uh, uh, point in the end. The scholars who are on the evidence or on the opinion that you must be upon wudu, and that is a widespread position that you should be upon wudu. لا يؤخذ الحكم من هذه الآية ولكن يؤخذ من أدلة أخرى. The Sheikh says, a Sheikh al-Athamin, therefore this ayah in of itself cannot be used as your primary evidence that you cannot touch the Quran without wudu. Because the actual context of this ayah is about the angels. So we need something more specific to us. Because the other scholars will say, well, that's about the angels. It's not about us. So you cannot definitely say we have to be upon purity. But the Sheikh says there are other evidences though. This one, don't need to use it as a primary evidence. The other evidences, he mentions fi kitab Amr ibn Hazm. What does he mean? There are evidences in that. For example, qawluhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fi kitab Amr ibn Hazm. What is this kitab of Amr ibn Hazm? Hmm? He what? Uh-huh. So this was at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, what was written, some rulings and regulations into some scriptures. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, certain scriptures would be written, documents as we call them. Certain documents were written at that time. The Prophet ﷺ would dictate a document to be written. The ruling on this, the ruling on that, the ruling on this. And then that document would be sent with one of the companions, for example, to go to another land and to give da'wah. And he has the rulings laid out for him in that document regarding certain issues of fiqh or whatever it might be. So some of these documents were written at that time. This is one of the ones, the famous ones, it mentions the document of Amr ibn Hazm. In that one it says, That no one must touch the Quran except that they are upon purity. So there it's very clear, precise in reference to us. The Prophet ﷺ telling him in that document, nobody touches the Quran, the Mus'haf, except that they are upon purification. وَالطَّاهِرْ هُنَا الْمُؤْمِنَ The meaning of Tahir here, the meaning of Tahir here, is the one who is upon actual physical purity, not just the internal purity. Internal purity, like we said, is Iman and Kufar. Iman is purity, Kufar is impurity, internally. But here it's not the internal meaning. It's the meaning externally too, as well as internally. Externally too, that you must be upon wudu and purification, to touch the Mus'haf. How do we know that though? It just says nobody must touch it except the one who is Tahir, pure. And we know that when we talk about purity, there are two types, physical external purity and internal purity, i.e. Iman. How do we know this one doesn't mean just Iman? That the Prophet isn't just saying nobody can touch it except a person who is Tahir, i.e. a person who is a Mu'min, regardless of whether they are actually upon 
external purity of wudu that it has to be a mu'min only not the kuffar how do we know that's not the meaning here without having to use any other hadith So, how do we know that this means wudu and it doesn't just mean iman? That's the question. Because somebody pure can have two meanings. Somebody pure physically. Kafir washes himself completely, he's pure physically. But the other purity is internal, iman. Which purity is intended here? We're saying it's intending the physical impurity. That you are obviously internal, that you are a believer, but you are upon physical purity too. When you touch the Mus'haf. How do we know and how can we say that's what it means? What if somebody comes along and says, no, what if it means the internal uh, purity only? Because that is a meaning of Tahir too. Exactly. We said it so many times, it's impossible to forget. Those basic rules when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah. When it comes to the names and attributes of Allah. You remember when we gave those examples when you say, Yesterday I saw, I was in the forest and I saw a lion. Compared to when you say, Yesterday I was walking past the cafe in town center and I saw the lion. In your first example, the default understanding is, the animal, you're in a forest, you saw a lion, your default understanding is the default meaning of the word. A physical uh, uh, animal lion. But now when you say I was walking in the town center past the cafe and I saw the lion there, now you know because of the context and the qara'in as they say, the supporting evidences of your scenario, that more than likely you don't mean the default meaning of the word, you mean a secondary meaning. And that is how you can use the word lion for somebody brave. Somebody here is known as Muhammad the lion. Everybody refers to him as. So when you say I saw the lion in town, everybody knows you're talking about Muhammad. So we have default meanings of words and we have secondary meanings of words. When it comes to Tahir, typically what is the default meaning of it? Purity. When you talk about purity, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? What is the default of it? Physical purity, washing yourself, cleaning yourself. That is the norm for the word purity. So the same kind of rule can be applied here that the asal in that meaning and the habit and the norm of using the word purity is for physical purity, washing, cleansing, etc. Then we move on to the next chapter. Bab. وَسَمَّ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ الصَّلَاةَ عَمَلًا وَقَالْ لَا صَلَاةَ لِمَنْ لَمْ يَقْرَأْ بِفَاتِحَةِ الْكِتَابِ Chapter that the Prophet sallallahu named or termed the prayer as action. And said that there is no prayer for the one who does not recite the Fatiha. Al-Fatiha min as-Salah. The Fatiha, we discussed it briefly a couple of last week or a couple of lessons ago. It is part of the prayer. And in fact, what type of part of the prayer is it? How many parts of the prayer are there? What we mean is, all the actions in the prayer can be categorized into certain types of prayer or parts of the prayer. We have the conditions are never part of anything. Conditions, remember this, conditions are never a part of anything. Conditions are always prerequisites to something. The shurut, when they talk about a shart, a shart is a prerequisite to something being valid. It may be required 
that this prerequisite has to maintain itself to the end of the worship to be valid, but a condition by its very nature has to be a prerequisite. So it's not part of it. They don't mention conditions as a section of the prayer. They are prerequisites you have to be established upon for that prayer and that worship to then be valid. For example, you have to be facing the Qibla. That isn't an action or a part within the prayer you're going to do. That is a prerequisite you face the Qibla before you start. You must be upon purity. That's a prerequisite before you start. You have to uh, uh, be upon wudu facing the Qibla. Have your awrah covered. All of these are prerequisites to the prayer which are needed uh, uh, and required to be maintained to the end of the prayer. They are prerequisites. That's not the definition of the word shart, but just an explanation. So when we talk about the prayer itself though, the actions of the prayer can be categorized in three categories. Either they are pillars, arkan, or they are the obligations, the wajibat, or they are sunan. And that's why when you have the narration, Sallu kama ra'aytumuni usalli, pray as you have seen me pray, the sifatu salah, the description of the Prophet's prayer, the Prophet's prayer described, there are two descriptions of the Prophet's prayer. There are two descriptions of the Prophet's prayer. In line with those three categories of actions, pillars, obligations, sunan. How so? Anybody? How can there be two descriptions of the Prophet's prayer? The Prophet taught us the prayer in one way, one description that you have to pray on. There's no options, you can pray this way or that way. So how can there be two descriptions of the Prophet's prayer? The answer is linked to those three categories. Makruhat. So we had the category of the, the uh, pillars, we had the category of the obligations, we had the category of the sunan. Where did your category of makruhat come? Three categories from those. So you have a prophet's prayer described, as the scholars explain, which is only inclusive of the pillars and the obligations. If somebody prayed with all of the pillars, all of the obligations, but missed out all of the sunan, their prayer is valid and accepted or not? Valid and accepted. They've done all the pillars, they've done all the obligations, they missed the sunnah acts out. So their prayer is correct. It is from the description of the Prophet's prayer, but it is a deficient method or deficient prayer. You have not prayed precisely as the Prophet prayed, but you've done the minimum which makes it valid. You've done all the pillars, you've done all the obligations. Then the perfect or the proper Prophet's prayer described upon praying as we have seen the Prophet pray is that you have the pillars, you have the obligations and you have the sunan acts within it. That makes it then praying upon the way that the Prophet prayed. Here it talks about the Fatiha and it says the Fatiha is from those three categories which type? It's a pillar. From the arkan of the prayer, a pillar of the prayer. And what are the differences? How do you know what the differences are? How do you determine if something is a pillar? Or what is the rulings of the pillars and the rulings of the obligations and the rulings of the sunan? If you miss a pillar, what happens? 
your prayer is invalid or at least the raka'ah is invalid at least and you'll have to repeat that raka'ah at least if you miss uh, an obligation then what happens what's the ruling now then if it is done unintentionally intentionally your prayer is invalid you purposely miss it out but unintentionally forgetfully etc you miss out a an obligation then your prayer is not invalid it is still valid but you have to do the prayer or the uh, prostration of forgetfulness a wajib that is missed you do the prostrations of forgetfulness and the sunan you don't have to do anything if you missed a sunnah act out of the prayer your prayer is deficient it's not the complete description of the prophet's prayer but it's valid and no repeat or prostrations are required the fatiha is from the pillars of the prayer and therefore along with the theme that we've been discussing here about the actions of the servants reading the fatiha is a part of your prayer it is a pillar of your prayer it is therefore a part of your action of praying and this whole section is talking about how our actions are ours created and you have the opening narration here qala haddathani sulaiman qala haddathana shu'ba an al-walid qala wa haddathani abbad ibn yaqub al-asadi qala akhbarana abbad ibn al-awwam an shaybani an al-walid ibn al-ayza al-ayzar an abi amr al-shaybani an ibn mas'ud radiyallahu anhu anna rajulan sa'ala an-nabiy sallallahu أي الأعمال أفضل قال الصلاة لوقتها وبر الوالدين ثم الجهاد في سبيل الله that a man came to the Prophet وسلم, and asked him which of the actions is the best which of the actions is the best the Prophet وسلم, said الصلاة لوقتها in another narration, as-salatu ala waqtiha. And that means the prayer in its time. But it means something a bit more specific than that. It doesn't just mean the prayer in its time. It means the prayer at the earliest time is normally how it's mentioned in the books and the explanations. But you could be a bit more precise and say the prayer at its That's the same as the earliest time. The issue with that statement generally leaving it open is that not all of the prayers are best at their earliest time. Which one is better at its later time? Isha? if the congregation is capable of it if the congregation is capable of it then isha is preferred to be delayed and prayed at the later time and there are narrations about that occurring and the prophet ﷺ delaying it on occasion the famous narration of when the companions were sitting waiting for the prophet ﷺ, and their heads were nodding off to the extent you could even hear the heavy breathing when somebody nods off and you can hear the slightly heavy breathing you could even hear that and they were nodding off waiting for the prophet to come so normally all the prayers are at their early time that is better except the isha which is done at the later time which is better and except one other prayer when it's extremely hot in extreme heat it is permissible to delay the dhuhr 
and pray it closer towards Asr because closer towards Asr does it get hotter or colder? Colder because it's hottest when the sun is at the top near Dhuhr time that is the hottest and then when you get later on into the day it becomes cooler in the days when we were in Medina the highest I think I ever saw on those clocks those big clocks in the streets was something near the 50 mark 48 maybe 47 48 getting close to the 50 mark they say though the conspiracy theory that those figures are always below the actual temperature conspiracy theory that they are always below the actual temperature because they have a rule in certain areas of Saudi Arabia if it hits 50 then you're allowed to leave work and go home so they have a conspiracy one of our teachers on his conspiracy theories he, uh, when we were in the Arabic college back in the early days he said it's always below what it actually is check it yourself it will be over 50 already in, in that type of heat you walk walk not even run or jog or nothing you leave the mosque here and you walk to your car 20 meters away and you are already sweating but the point is in that type of heat you're allowed to delay the dhuhr towards asr time so how come they don't do it then in Saudi Arabia for example why don't they do it in summer when you're hitting 50 degrees and you are hitting 50 degrees then why don't they delay it tell us all oh, residents of Saudi Arabia <laughs> why don't they do it umbrellas fans air condition mashallah that's just what you've seen but what about all the deserts and everywhere else and outer areas <coughs> As Sheikh al he said it's just one of those practicalities that the way the, the system works there schools and universities and everything finishes at Dhuhr and so it's just a practicality and easier and better to ensure that everybody prays in Jama'ah etc that you just do your Dhuhr straight away there and then and then you go home and do your thing but if you were to delay it then people would go and often people take the nap at that time you would have a lot more absence in the jama'ah etc so the sheikh said perhaps it's due to the practicality and from the worship side of things to make sure that mo, uh, most of the people uh, they attend that prayer in jama'ah so they just do it straight after all the officers and everything finishes at around dhuhr time this narration, the point of it is clear. The man came asking the Prophet, what is the best of actions? One of the actions mentioned is the prayer. And then you have also the piety to your parents, the righteousness towards your parents, and then uh, fighting in the path of Allah. The point of the prayer is within the prayer you have recitation of the Quran. And that is the point of this whole section talking about the Quran and that the Quran is not created. Look at how long that section is. How long this section is talking about this point of the Quran and that it's not created and that your recitation, your recitation is created but not the words, making that point of aqidah so crystal clear. Because so many people of innovation they went astray on this point. Even now, you remember a couple of years ago, some of those who are not educated enough to be speaking about these types of affairs, Yusuf, Estes, etc., and they began to say all types of things which are deviations in the correct aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah. The one who doesn't have that ability, then you shouldn't be speaking in those types of affairs. So many of them, they tried to delve into this, and even now, all of the, the young uh, uh, scholars all of the young scholars the 20 year olds and the 25 year olds on youtube and everywhere else and they're giving lessons in aqidah and lessons in this and lessons in that and the reality is they've never properly uh, established themselves in it to properly be grounded in it to have done multiple books aqidah isn't that you do one book and you think that's it i understand aqidah 
person comes along and he does Al-Aqeedah uh, Al-Wasatiyah. Complete that book. You will not have mastered Aqeedah. Then you do another book. You do uh, some other book in Aqeedah Al-Hamawiyyah, uh, as the, the order goes up. And you do other books in Aqeedah, various different books. When you do multiple books in Aqeedah, then you see that your understanding of the affairs is becoming rounded. Now you understand properly the position of Ahl Sunnah regarding the Sahaba and what we say. Now you understand properly the position of Ahl Sunnah when it comes to the topic of Iman, the topic of the decree, the topic of the names and attributes. You understand it when you gain a broader uh, recognition and reading into various books. But many of them, maybe they've done one book, if that. And they think, khalas, I've done this book of Aqeedah. Now there's going to be a series of 20 lessons teaching this book of Aqeedah. And that isn't sufficient. One book here, one book there isn't sufficient for you to claim that your knowledge is rounded. Then after that... The next chapter begins, but we're short on time today, regrettably. Today we have to end on that point there. Uh, We'll start the next chapter next time. Uh, We'll be able to do a bit more next week, inshallah ta'ala. Any questions on that or unrelated? Does it mean that the angels can touch it or is it about? Well, both. Because the point of that original tafsir of many of the scholars is that it's talking about the preserved tablet and the Quran being in that preserved tablet and that none can touch it except those upon purity, i.e. the angels. So it's an evidence that you have to be upon purity. But the evidence in that context is about the preserved tablet. That the angels are there in the heavens, the preserved tablet is there, but none can touch it except the pure, the angels, upon purity. But the scholars, they say that doesn't refer to us though. In the afterlife, or or, not the afterlife, but from the unseen, from the unseen of what occurs in the heavens and the angels and the preserved tablet and touching it, not touching it, all those specifics and details we don't have anyway. We don't have all of the details of exactly what happens and who goes and who doesn't go. There are some narrations about those things, about when the revelation occurs and Jibreel hears that and then he comes and the other angels are unconscious from fear and then they rise up again and they ask Jibreel, what did your Lord say? There are narrations about some of the things that occur, but the details of it all, we don't have specifics. Anything else? So here we're talking about the Fatiha, we mentioned it, that the Fatiha is a pillar. So now the brother is asking if the Fatiha is a pillar. When you come into the masjid now, the Jama'ah is going on and they are in the Ruku'ah. And you come and catch up and go into the Ruku'ah and carry on from there. Does that Raka'ah count or not? That's the first question. Does it count or not? Counts. The Fatiha is a pillar of the prayer. You've missed a pillar in that Raka'ah. So how does it count? You never got the recitation of the Imam. You came late. You caught the Raka'ah. You never heard the Imam's recitation at all. even though you didn't actually hear it and you missed it, but because you've come into that raka'ah where the imam had recited, so it counts for you, Yani. The what? The what? 
Uh-huh. There's a narration like that. The one who meets the Imam in the Ruku'ah. No, not explicit like that. There's one about man adraka raka'ah, adraka salah. But that just says whomsoever catches a raka'ah has caught that, that unit. Raka'ah, does it count from the Ruku'ah or does it count from the Fatiha? That's what that narration says. Whomsoever catches, uh, catches, no, no, man adraka, uh, yeah, 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 man adraka raka'ah. Whomsoever catches one raka'ah has caught the prayer. But a narration saying if you've caught the ruku'ah, you've caught the prayer. No, there's a narration about before the imam straightens his path, mm. that if you catch that, if you caught that path, that you've caught the, you've made them the raka'ah. I can't remember how it's the narration when it's what there's something along that line. So there is one narration, there is a narration where Abu Bakrah, not Abu Bakrah Siddiq, Abu Bakrah radiallahu anhu came to the mosque and he was late. When he arrived, the, the masjid door was obviously at the back. That's the, the normal default way of making a mosque. The door is at the back. So the jama'ah is at the front. People who come, they come and join the jama'ah from the back. So he came late that time and when he came, they were already in ruku'ah. The Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba were already in Ruku'ah when he walked in. So what did he do? Allahu Akbar, stay straight into the Ruku'ah, just at the door of the mosque. And the Jama'ah is up there. you got to walk up to the rows. He's gone straight into Ruku'ah. And then he walked up to the Jama'ah and lined up. Afterwards, everybody understood what's happened here. He's walked into the mosque from the back. He's seen at the front. That they are in Ruku'ah and there's a big gap between him to where the lines are at the front. He's gone into Ruku'ah from there and then walked up to the line and joined in to make sure he catches the Ruku'ah. But afterwards the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Zadakallahu hirsan wala ta'ud. May Allah increase you in your zeal and enthusiasm. That he didn't want to miss the prayer into the ruku'ah from the back. But, la ta'ud. Do not repeat that. Do not go back to that again. What does that mean? If it actually even says la ta'ud. We'll get to the other wording in a minute. La ta'ud doesn't mean that. That's the other one we'll come to. So it could mean, when the Prophet said to him, May Allah increase you in your enthusiasm, but don't do that again. I.e., don't go into ruku'ah from the back before you even line up in the jama'ah. It could mean that. But it doesn't mean that because of another evidence in the same hadith. <coughs> that evidence being, did the Prophet ﷺ tell him to repeat that raka'ah? No. So him having gone into the ruku'ah from the back and walking up to the jama'ah and lining up, that raka'ah counted. The Prophet didn't say to him, don't do that again and repeat that raka'ah what you just did. Nothing. It was allowed to pass. His raka'ah was valid. That is therefore an evidence that catching the ruku'ah, you catch the raka'ah. Because if he... Uh, uh, if him having joined in from the ruku'ah, which is where he joined in from, was invalid as a raka'ah, then at the end the Prophet would have told him, and repeat your raka'ah. Never told him to repeat the raka'ah, indicating that raka'ah where he caught it from the ruku'ah was valid. But then what does it mean? Don't do that again. If it doesn't mean that because that is valid, his raka'ah. Then it's possible it means... Do not rush because another wording or another vowelization of this hadith is wala ta'du, which means to run and to rush. Because he was obviously late and he'd been rushing to the mosque. And we know from the sunnah you don't run or rush to the mosque. If you're late, you're late now. That's what you've done. Come calmly still to the mosque. So they say the meaning of don't do it again was don't rush to the mosque. But him going into ruku' and catching that raka'ah was valid. So that is one opinion of the scholars based upon that. If you catch the raka'ah, it's valid. 
other opinion though, and I think Sheikh Al-Fawzan is on this other opinion, that if you catch the prayer in the ruku'ah, it doesn't count that rak'ah. Because you've missed the pillar of Al-Fatiha. It's a pillar, no doubt about that, it's a pillar. You've missed that pillar in that rak'ah. So if you catch it in the ruku'ah, then it doesn't count. You've got to repeat that rak'ah. That is an opinion. Al-Shaykh al his opinion regarding reciting the Fatiha is that everyone themselves must recite it. And that behind the Imam doesn't count. So your uh, explanation wouldn't work with the Shaykh al-Thaymeen. But despite that, he says your raka accounts. Because he says, even though the Fatiha is a rukan, uh, a pillar of the prayer, he says this situation, because of that evidence of Abu Bakr, etc., is an exception. He's not saying it's a rule. Yes, the Fatiha covers you from the Imam. Doesn't take that position. He says, you got to recite it yourself. But in that scenario, it's an exception. So that's why you have the difference on those two. Some say it's allowed, it counts. Some say it don't count because the Fatiha is a rukan. Either you recite it or you don't. One other thing with that situation, imagine you walk into the mosque, we'll conclude on this. You walk into the mosque and they are in the ruku'ah. How many takbirat do you do to go into the ruku'ah? Two, why two? One for the takbiratul ihram, Allahu Akbar, you're in the prayer now. Then, one to go into the ruku'ah. Any other opinion? Just one? Straight away, no two. Huh? Why one? How are you going to do one? What's that one you're doing? But what is that one? What are you doing? What's the one takbirah you're doing? <laughs> Here, the asal, of course, the default is two. One for takbiratul ihram, Allahu Akbar, you're in the prayer now. Then Allahu Akbar to go into Ruku'ah. However, the scholars have said, if you come into the mosque and they are in Ruku'ah, as Sheikh bin Baz has mentioned, you walk into the mosque, they are in Ruku'ah, and you fear that at any moment now the Imam is going to say, Allah, and start coming up. In which case, you will have missed the Raka'ah. If you fear they might be on the verge of that, then just do your takbiratul ihram, obviously, to enter into the prayer. And that encompasses and covers you for the other takbirah. Go straight into the ruku'ah. Because otherwise, if you do Allahu Akbar, and then Allahu Akbar, by the time you get to your second, imagine he starts saying, Allah, that's it, you've missed it now. So for that reason, if you fear he's about to come up, you can do one takbirah and go straight into the ruku'ah. And upon that, we will go straight to the door. Insha'Allah ta'ala, we'll carry on next week, insha'Allah, straight after the uh, Isha prayer.